Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast of the Trove Asia, where we examine the news, events, and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia, and with me today is Dr. James Leibold, Senior Lecturer in Politics and Asian Studies here at La Trobe. And today we're going to be talking about China's efforts to ban the Islamic Veil in its western province of Xinjiang. Jim, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Good to be here. Well, let's start with some general stuff around Xinjiang for those who are not familiar with the geography and sort of distribution of ethnicities in China. Tell us a little bit about Xinjiang, where it is, who the Uyghur people are and why um, the Islamic yeah. Veils. Uh, well, Xinjiang is a sort of far western region of China. It's not a, a province per se. It's a officially designated a autonomous region. <laughs> About um, half of its population is comprised of roughly 10 million Muslim Uyghurs. The Uyghurs are a Turkic-speaking minority that have long practiced a kind of syncretic, moderate form of Islam. In Xinjiang is, uh, you know, the heart of the old Silk Road and still today very strategically located. Uh, lots of natural resources, as well as a sort of gateway into Eurasia for, for China and its new leader, Xi Jinping. Why did the government, well, what's happened? What has the government sought to do in Xinjiang with regard to uh, Islamic dress? Well, for many years, the party state in China has been battling a kind of uh, low-grade insurgency led by the Uyghurs, a kind of separatist movement that has roots historically. But this is now, in recent years, tied up with the sort of global discourse against um, Islamic extremism. And so in the last decade or so, you've had two parallel phenomena going on. Uh, one, a sort of increasing religiosity among some segments of the Uyghur community, that's uh, been influenced uh, both by domestic factors as well as some global factors, as well as a, a rise of ethnic as well as religious imbued uh, violence that um, has increasingly spread out of the region of Xinjiang. Uh, we had pretty dramatic examples of that last year when there was an attack on a train station, uh, innocent travelers at a train station in Kunming, as well as uh, a number of bombings, suicide bombings in Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang, as well as a really dramatic suicide car blast right in the heart of Beijing in Tiananmen Square that killed a number of people. And so the state is trying to respond to this violence by launching a, uh, a year-long anti-religious extremist uh, terrorist uh, campaign in Xinjiang. And the veil gets tied up with that. So why now? So why target the veil in particular, a hardly threatening form of dress, and why do it now, given this thing's been going on for quite a considerable period of time? Has there been any particular spark or any issue that's brought this to a head? Yeah, well, the campaign against the veil really has its roots around 2011 when the party launched something called Project Beauty. Project Beauty was a kind of educational campaign to try to persuade Uyghur women to throw off their veils and adopt kind of modern culture, get people voluntarily to change their habits uh, of dress. We've seen since then, you know, the, the project has largely failed. In the wake of all this violence, the party felt like it had to sort of up the ante. And so it's uh, gone from kind of trying to persuade people from uh, donning the sort of full face, full body uh, coverings to actually banning it through new uh, legal regulations, as well as um, enforcing it in a pretty heavy-handed way uh, in local communities. So failed women are being 
uh, rounded up, registered, educated, and if they refuse to change their ways, they're being either forcefully detained. Um, we have some cases of families being uh, denied social benefits for women who refuse to reform their ways. And so we see a sort of kind of increasing pressure placed on Uyghur women to change their very traditional practices of uh, hidden body coverings. Is it something that's seen as a kind of visible way of saying we're clamping down on extremist Islam? Or is it is there a sort of that strain that still exists in the party of seen as trying to modernise China and that this sort of stuff is a throwback to a kind of backward anti-modern past? Are those those two things playing Yeah, I think you, you've, you've got to shift from one to the other. You, know, you don't have to go that far back, say a decade, of attitudes towards, let's say, the headscarf in particular, but also other forms of head and body coverings. They were seen as symbols of traditional Uyghur culture. The constitution in China allows the Uyghurs to protect their traditional customs, this is a part of it, no big deal. But within the last decade, you had a sort of shift, particularly under Project Beauty, to start to see the veil as kind of backward, abnormal forms that don't accord with traditional Islamic attire. And then recently, in the last year or so, you've seen the veil going from kind of a abnormal form or backward form of uh, attire to what the party calls an outward manifestation of religious extremism. And the danger here is that they're making a very simplistic one-to-one uh, -one equation between Islamic uh, extremism and forms of head and body coverings. And so it's really based on a really false and facile assumption that what people wear is actually any indication of their, you know, political thoughts. Yeah, and I was doing some reading around this and particularly looking at that article that you wrote. It's on China File and also republished in Foreign Policy and, and how you talked about how the veil actually refers to this huge diversity of dress. I wonder if you'd just say a little bit about the different kinds of things that are being banned because I'm, I think often, certainly in Australia and much of the West, when people talk about the veil, they automatically think of the really you know, conservative chador or the burqa or the niqab. And, and that's not really the case. In, well, in this is one of the big problems of the party's campaign. It's not clear exactly what it is banning or what it's targeting for elimination. Part of the problem here is we're dealing with a number of different languages. So you've got various Arabic terms for different types of head and body coverings, jilbab, the hijab, uh, the niqab, etc. And then you've got Uyghur terms for those, you know, variations on those uh, types of form. Then you have Chinese terms for those. And so a lot of it's getting lost in translation. So the party has attempted to counter this by putting up posters. So they've identified the so-called five the abnormal types. This includes uh, people who wear what's called the jilbab or a sort of a dark robe. The second, a niqab, a sort of full face uh, veil, as well as the hijab, which is very popular now quite globally, a sort of tight fitting scarf around that covers the ears and the chest. Those are the three. And then there are two others uh, targeted largely at males, the people with long beards or to be uh, held in suspicion, as well as people who wear any clothing that has got the star and crescent uh, as a symbol on it. While those photographs and the so-called five types are quite clear, there's a lot of concern amongst the Uyghur community that ultimately they will also target the very ubiquitous and popular headscarf, which has long been a symbol of uh, Uyghur female femininity and identity. And there's great concern that that's the ultimate aim. And in fact, if you look at Project Beauty and you look at 
they've also put forward images of what they see as a sort of normal type of traditional Uyghur attire, and that's these colorful atlas dresses as well as braided hair and a dopa hat. So we can see where the party wants to take people, but the danger is that, you know, while the vast majority of the Uyghur population probably not opposed or against the wearing of kind of full burqa-style coverings, they certainly would defend their headscarves quite vehemently. And if the party were to extend it to headscarves, they would have an even bigger problem on their hand. So there's a kind of sense of the party saying, you can have one kind of traditional dress, we'll decide what it is, and the rest of it will exactly. decide In fact, they've, they've, there's a, a leading small group of the uh, regional party in Xinjiang that has set up a bureau that has been tasked with standardizing ethnic customs and clothing. And so they are supposed to deliver a report uh, later this year that will define and provide samples of traditional Uyghur as well as other ethnic minority clothing. Everyone can just relax. That's right. The, the so we know exactly what we should be wearing and everything will be fine. You also noted that interest in this dress seems to have increased amongst the Uyghur population since the early 2000s. So it's become increasingly popular. Why is that the case? Yeah, well, here, I mean, and I should say that this uh, research is done in collaboration with my colleague Tim Gross at Rose Holman uh, University in the United States. And Tim is, a, unlike myself, uh, an anthropologist, a man who gets his uh, hands dirty out in the actual streets, and he has a, a large store of uh, Uyghur informants. And uh, for over a decade, he's been traveling to Xinjiang, as well as uh, interviewing Uyghur students in coastal places like uh, Beijing and Tianjin. And what Tim has found talking with these Uyghur women is that they veil, that they cover their heads and bodies for a variety of reasons. And that should be no surprise to us because this is the case globally. And so some of the reasons why they do it are as simple as uh, it's fashionable. It's a way of asserting my femininity uh, in a colorful lively fashion. Others do it because of the Koran's requirement for female modesty. Others do it uh, not willingly because their husbands or their parents have encouraged or even forced them to wear it. Others do it as an assertion of kind of a, being a part of a global Islamic community. And then finally, some do it as an assertion of uh, Uyghur identity in opposition to the dominant Han culture. And so we see a variety of different reasons. And one of the big problems with the party state's anti-veiling campaign, which we should note, you know, has occurred in other places such as France and Belgium. But the difference here is that the voices of Uyghur women and Uyghur men, for that matter, have been largely denied from participation in this debate. It's really a paternalistic largely male, Han-faced party state telling Uyghur women what they should and should not wear. To what extent is this party state initiative part of a broader effort, not just counterterrorism and anti-Islamic extremism, but part of a broader effort to ensure central control and the party state sort of Han conception of what China is? Is this a sort of small front in a larger war, as it were? Very much so. I mean, this has got deep roots in China as a party state that would like to control nearly every aspect of its uh, citizens' lives. In the case of Xinjiang and its policies towards its Uyghurs are really seen, particularly under Xi Jinping, a kind of doubling down of effort to really penetrate down to the grassroots level. I mean, you had a kind of situation where under the Maoist era, the party was quite present in the people's lives, but 
the key to Deng Xiaoping's reforms after the death of Mao was kind of really removing the party from the back of ordinary people and kind of letting them go on their way. And we've seen a kind of counter movement starting with Jiang Zemin, but certainly I think she has doubled it in intensity of really kind of getting down in the grassroots level, governing every aspect of people's lives. And so in the case of the veil, in the policy against the veil, we see the party really penetrating quite deeply down into the lives of women, telling them what you can and cannot wear. And certainly in the case of the Uyghurs, that's resulted in resistance. And we've got many cases of direct counter-violence that has been spurred by women who have been forcefully deveiled or husbands that seek to hold up their honor by attacking police stations and other officials. So what's at stake in all of this? I mean, because it seems like this could potentially backfire quite badly. You know, it's set out to end the wearing of the veil. It sounds like it's got a big battle on its hands. It's almost certainly likely to lose. What's at stake if that happens? Yeah, certainly it's going to make various forms of head and body coverings a kind of symbol of Uyghur identity and Uyghur resistance to the party state and the Han-dominated culture. It's going to result in sporadic uh, violence. But at the same time, uh, Nick, I think it's important to note that in Xinjiang, we don't have something like what happened in Chechnya. We're not at that kind of level of ethnic conflict and counterinsurgency. You know, the party state is quite capable. It's got a very large domestic security apparatus. It's quite capable of kind of stamping out any resistance. But what it will do is it will force it underground. It will sort of kind of well up. And from time to time, it's going to explode out. So I expect we'll see additional attacks going forward. But at the same time, nothing I think that the party state uh, can't handle. Mm. You mentioned in your piece that was in China File a neat line, which I just wanted to sort of explore with you for a little bit, and that's this idea that what's going on in Xinjiang is in fact a sort of function of the nature of the Chinese state, which you use this great phrase that it's an inherently fragile state. Do you think that's the case? Do you think this is a paranoid reaction, overreaction, and it's just going to move from here to another manifestation? Or is there some other kind of structural imperative pushing this uh, along? Yeah, it's a state that lacks confidence in some ways. It's, a, it's aware of its growing stature around the globe. It's growing economic power as well as uh, military power, but yet it's one that doesn't trust its own citizens. And so I guess you could say it's always looking over its shoulder, wondering who's out to, to get it and stab it in the back. That type of kind of paranoid state structure is one that I think is inherently fragile. Mao once said a sort of single spark can lead to a prairie fire, and so one wonders, where is that spark? And I think the party is always going with a a fire extinguisher trying to sort of put it out, but doing it in a full-on way with lots of fire extinguishers, but also in a haphazard way, you know, just let's just spray blanketly rather than really targeting things. And, well, I don't think the veil is going to be that spark, you know. I mean, the Uyghurs are too small of a population, too marginal. Certainly amongst the Han majority, there are many uh, sources, uh, many irritants that could easily lead to you know, a prairie fire at some stage. Mm. So it's a kind of cat and mouse game with the cat being an aggressive, the mouse, many of them, you know, rats scurrying across the road, as Xi Jinping once called terrorists, and the party doing its best to kind of stamp them out. I don't know, we'll see who wins that game in the yeah. end. Because it does seem to me, I mean, objectively, from, as it's not someone who watches this stuff particularly closely, a wild overreaction one that's counterproductive in so many ways. And I think, as you said, it's a function of this 
semi-paranoid state the party state seems to exist in the whole house of cards can come tumbling okay. down yeah right. well that's all the time we have for but um, thanks very much Jim for joining us and uh, look forward to following this up in the future you've been listening to Asia Rising a podcast of Latrobe Asia you can follow Dr. James Leibold on Twitter at J Leibold L-E-I-B-O-L-D or you can follow me at Nick Bisley if you like this podcast you can subscribe to Asia Rising on iTunes or at SoundCloud thanks for listening